arhats, arhats. Um, this is the word that uh, was used in the early text to refer to those who were fully awakened, and enlightened, we might say. And so trying to think about this, the, um, to try to characterize this talk, I think things like lifestyles of the arhats, <laughs> you know, maybe uh, suburban arhats, we don't really have models of fully awakened beings aside from those described in the earliest texts. You know, I mean, if you think of what does an enlightened being look like, what is a fully, we think maybe some monk sitting in a jungle somewhere, in, in a, a, a hermit, a recluse of some kind. <clears throat> I mean, what, what, kind of, what kind of models of awakened beings are there? We don't have a lot of models that you know, would show up in contemporary in the contemporary world, and I think that's a shame because I, I what I'm going to try to do is is make a case for the possibility that full awakening is possible for those of us who live a lay life in contemporary in the contemporary world. So I want to talk a little bit about that because there's a sense somehow that an awakened being, an arhat, you know, the Buddha was an arhat, but he was distinguished from the others because he uh, came to awakening on his own efforts. Um, but the fully awakened beings that, you know, you read in, this, in the suttas, you know, the Buddha said, the sky is blue, or whatever he said, and the, you know, a thousand people woke up. You know, <laughs> it's like, you had to be there, I think. <laughs> but there's a sense that somehow this is something that, you know, these were special people, they were distinct entities, but their lifestyle was a conditioned lifestyle, it wasn't separate. Uh, from the society that supported them. You know, we think of them as sitting in solitude, but they depended on the lay society for their livelihood. I mean, they outsourced their livelihood, basically. Um, when, uh, uh, and, and their ability to live the kind of life that the Buddha lived or that those around him lived at the time required conditions that were different than than today. Ajahn Amara, who's uh, uh, the abbot of uh, Amravati now in England, but he, he used to, to uh, live in California, told a story once about how he went to a conference in Dharamsala, I think, and um, the people who flew him there, I mean, as a monk, he doesn't handle money. But they, so they flew him there and they put him up at a hotel in Delhi, I think a Marriott's or something. And, uh, you know, the, the lifestyle of the, of the uh, bhikkhu, he would stand on the street outside the Marriott's with his begging bowl. Uh, and over a period of two days before all his friends arrived, he says he got a half a cup of tea. So it's not a lifestyle that works in downtown Delhi. <laughs> you know. So the lifestyle of the arhats, as we imagine them, is conditioned uh, by the by the the social situations uh, at the time. You know, there's a there's a story about when the the uh, monks at uh, Kosambi were quarreling, and the Buddha said, "Cool it," and they sort of sort of blew him off and he finally he left and then the people in the town said uh, you know you're, you're quarreling drove the Buddha away no alms for you unless you work this out and get him back so guess what they worked it out you know and, and uh, so they were not separate from the society of the time and so I'm, I'm thinking that it, it, we should contemplate what it might look like to be a fully awakened one in, contemporary, in the contemporary world. You know, what is a fully awakened being? 
there's a, a place in the Samyutta Nikaya where someone comes to uh, Saraputta, who was this, the uh, Buddha's senior uh, Dharma disciple, and said, friend Saraputta, what is our hardship? And the answer was pretty simple. He said, it's the destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. And he was using three words in Pali, lobha, which we translate as desire, wanting, uh, lust, um, dosa, which we translate as aversion, anger, the no stuff, and delusion, which may be a little trickier to, uh, to pick up. Um, I mean, how do you tell when you're deluded? The biggest clue is that you think you're not. <laughs> so the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, how do you manage that? And what would it look like if we lived like that in our contemporary world? Yeah, please. Let me let me make my case, and then we'll we'll see what you think then. Oh, well, I don't mean oh. Them down. I mean, I, sure. You're not sure that they're possible. Well, in my my current consciousness, mm -hmm. as I understand human nature, mm -hmm. I see them as worthy, beautiful ideals, but I cannot conceive of them. Uh, in reality. Well, let me offer some thoughts and see if maybe you, you can. Okay. You know, the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, and that's just the, the short, shorthand for lobha, dosa, moha, which are really abroad. Each one of those words so is all the kinds of desiring from a little wish to, a, to craving and passion and, and obsession. And the same with, with aversion. Um, Nibbana actually in the, in the verse in the Samyutta just before that one I read Saraputta is asked what is Nibbana and he responds it's the absence, it's experience the absence with the absence of greed, hatred or delusion now this is not there's a there's a I think of it as a fault line in the Buddhist scene about uh, that, that breaks over the issue of Nibbana. So this is something that Bhikkhu Bodhi wrote. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi is the, the monk who's done, he's translated probably the most complete version of the, of the early texts. And he says, regarding the nature of Nibbana, the question is often asked, does Nibbana signify only the extinction of the defilements and liberation from samsara? That would be the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. Or does it sig signify some reality existing in itself? Nibbana is not only the destruction of defilements and the end of samsara, but a reality transcendent to the entire world of mundane experience, a reality transcendent to all the realms of phenomenal existence. And I think that there is that sense in the, in the Dharma community that there is such a thing like that. Uh, I don't know anything about that because I basically am limited. My sensorium doesn't transcend mundane experience. So I don't have anything to say about that. Uh, and when I actually read some of the writing um, trying to explain why such a thing might be thought to exist, it reminds me of those abstract logical proofs of the existence of God, something we can't experience. So we logically, in order to have the thought of him, he has to exist, that kind of thing. Uh, so it doesn't, that doesn't persuade me. So I'm working with the notion that the attainment that the Buddha, that the Buddha found was 
of the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. Actually, there's a place in the Majjhima where um, he's asked, the Buddha's asked, what is full understanding? And he says, full understanding is the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. What's interesting about that is that there's no separation between the understanding and the intention. They're linked together. What is the purpose of the holy life? He's asked. And he says, the purpose of the holy life is to develop a full understanding of dukkha, of of the unsatisfactoriness. To develop a full understanding of dissatisfaction. So the word, the word, and you know, other places the Buddha says, I teach suffering in the end of suffering, or dukkha in the end of dukkha. So we're talking about understanding dukkha. With the understanding of dukkha comes an entirely different way of being. So for example, so the Buddha articulated his insight and it was a it was a big insight, really. I mean, here we are 2,500 years later trying to figure out what was that? You know, what, what, did, he, what did he find out? How do you get the answers to those questions? <laughs> you know. Um, so he articulated his insight in the formulation that we, that we call the four, the four Noble Truths. And actually the label Four Noble Truths Contemporary scholarship seems to uh, feel fairly confident was not a label that the Buddha put on these teachings, but something that was later added maybe for, oh dear, advertising purposes, <laughs> noble truths. Um, you know, Stephen Batchelor, I, I think of them as four teachings. Stephen Batchelor calls them just the four um, there are four tasks, four, four, four. So the first of these, I'll call them truths because that's how we know them, and it's just keeping in mind that uh, um, the context of that phrase. Um, that first teaching, that first truth, is just a list of unpleasant experience. Actually, in the in the earliest text, the one that's known as the first sermon, the uh, the Buddha just this is these are the words just this way: the noble truth of suffering, birth, aging, sickness, death, pain, sorrow, distress, lamentation, despair, not getting what you want, getting what you don't want, losing what you care about, or who you care about. Unpleasant list, unwelcome experience. We would not script those things for ourselves out of compassion, uh, also out of aversion. Um, but, the, but the Buddha's instruction in regard to that is understand dukkha. This word dukkha, you know, a lot of people look at the etymology of it and um, it's a, it's a word that describes a particular kind of experience where we've got some unpleasantness and we make it worse by adding aversion to the mix. You know, I, think I, may have, I may have used this as an example. You're sitting and you're, you're following your breath and you've resolved, going to sit here, and then you get an itch. Anybody? <laughs> you know, or... Or, or your, you know, your foot goes to sleep, or something happens that's unpleasant, and you struggle with it. So you know, usually, what I mean, the the intensity of that itch. If you measured how intense that itch is on a scale of zero to ten, you know, the doc says on a scale of zero to ten, how's your pain? On a scale of zero to ten, how intense is that itch itself? And then how intense is the struggle that you bring to not move? That's a way we take what's maybe a one and turn it into what? A four, a six? We can really torment ourselves with it. So we make things worse. That unwelcome experience, the Buddha says, recognize it, understand it. That's the task. 
the second of these the second of the teachings is is often described as uh, the cause of suffering the cause of dukkha dukkha refers to that mix that it's a whole range from just uneasiness just a little uneasiness maybe a little frustration a little irritation maybe some anger maybe some rage some fear and panic loathing all that negative from intense says what makes that 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 dukkha happen is that the way we're built and the way we respond to the unpleasantness that first truth is about our life nobody's missed out on any of those elements we all get it all and what makes it worse is that we res- the way we respond and so dukkha is a brew of that unpleasant experience whatever it is sadness you know pain and our our struggle with it and we brew it up and it becomes particularly unpleasant and the buddha didn't have evolutionary biology as a conceptual tool to describe to describe how we are but what he described was the subjective experience that sort of matches so he used the word tanha to describe the condition that makes that unpleasant stuff toxically dukkha the word tanha literally translates as thirst it's an unquenchable thirst and i think there's something about that that's important because thirst isn't something that we do. We don't say now's the time for thirst. I'm going to thirst. Thirst just happens. Hunger just happens when the conditions are appropriate. It's not something that we do. You can't say stop being thirsty. No. Uh, the Buddha identified three kinds of this tanha stuff. The big one was bawa tanha b h a v a pronounced bawa tanha and usually that word is translated as becoming and i think sometimes bhikkhu bodhi translates it as existence it's the it's the desire it's the survival instinct really it's the the tendency in ourselves to want to keep on keeping on to keep becoming right and we just one foot ahead of the other we just keep going we want we want be anything we want to become something anything rather than the alternative and we've got this incredible brain which constructs a universe for us and we can imagine possibilities for how to make things better how to get ahead how to stabilize our position be safe and comfortable then there's kamatanha word kama talking about sensual pleasures it's the disposition to want our experience pleasant i actually think of tanha in this sense more as a preference than as anything else we have a preference for pleasant experience it's just the way we are and i think in terms of evolutionary biology pleasantness usually um you know will be a uh, signal for stuff that's good for us pain the opposite if we don't respond to pain by trying to make it go away the organism is at risk and so anybody who would have been an ancestor who didn't pay any attention to pain probably didn't get to pass on their genes <laughs> you know so we're we're cultured by however many generations of humans and then beyond before that you know we navigate this experience in terms of pleasant and unpleasant when things are pleasant we like it we want more when things are unpleasant make it go away kamatanha is a preference and it shows up as greed the preference you can't actually observe a preference it's just an abstract term that 
holds a place for, you know. And then vibhavatana, make it stop becoming. Which is, shows up as aversion. So when those, when those mix with unpleasant experience, we get the particularly unpleasant experience of trying to not scratch an itch. The third truth, the third teaching is uh, that this, and the language is very clear in that first sermon, the cessation of dukkha is the cessation of tanha. The cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion. Which may sound pretty unbelievable because we navigate by wanting and not wanting. So we'll talk a little bit about about that. But it's the cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion coming out of our disposition, the way we're built. So it's nothing, it happens automatically. It's not happening because we're bad people and greedy. We're built to be like that. It helps us and our species and all species survive. And survival isn't always that easy. So it takes some effort and energy and it takes the belief in our, our world view. We have to believe our thoughts. We don't believe our thoughts, we're going to say, is that brown spot that's getting bigger in front of me, is that a lion or is that, you know, you, you have, if you have it, you know, you see some brown behind the bush and you bug out, right? Uh, better to be cautious and alive, which is why there tends to be suspicion of strangers and you know, there's a whole... So how, how do we... How do we put an end to that. The word Naroda is interesting. Naroda is the word that um, is translated as cessation. But really what it means in, in Pali, the word was used to describe the process of shoring up a leaking rice paddy. So basically the Buddha is talking about we're leaking greed, hatred, and delusion out into the world. And we can put a stop to that. How do we do that? Well, the Eightfold Path. That's, you know, when Saraputta was asked, Arhatship, what is this? Is there a way to the end? And he said, yeah, it's the Eightfold Path. Same with the path to Nibbana, the Eightfold Path. That's the fourth truth. The Eightfold Path, when I first heard it, you know, I thought, way too many folds. (laughs) You know, I wanted to get down to what is, what is the, what's the, What's this about, really? So there are eight elements there. Oh, let me rattle them off. Uh, Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. The Buddha says that one who cultivates, well, the task is to, to cultivate this path. Sometimes a path is thought of as something that's going somewhere. And I've heard senior teachers say, the path to nirvana is not nirvana. And the path, like in the same way that the path to the Grand Canyon is not the Grand Canyon. That's that other idea of nirvana. The idea that that I work with that helps me is the idea that a path is more like a circumambulation of a stupa or a sacred mountain or something. So the path is something to get on and walk, metaphorically. The path is both the means and the end. It's the goal and the practice. So the goal is to practice, to cultivate the path. And the Buddha says, for one of right view, that first element, everything else falls in place. For one without right view, things go south. Metaphorically. (laughs) Right? Right view, that first element. Cultivate an understanding. So the word view is, um, is problematic, and so is the word right. 
I know on the up, up here on the uh, the prayer wheel as you walk into the retreat center at Spirit Rock, they've written the Eightfold Path as I think it's wise understanding. You know, some people use the the term um, uh, skillful. Um, I've I've come to to think of the word uh, that, that best translates the word is sama sama ditti right which we translate as right view I translate sama as appropriate. The first Zen patriarch was asked, "What is the essence of Zen?" And his response was an appropriate response because it takes the context into account. It's appropriate. So, what is right? view it's the the view that is appropriate in the sense of giving us an understanding of how to eliminate dukkha how to to abandon craving tanha how do we do that the word view is is also feels a little bit stiff to me a view is like a vista looking out over you know it's and it's not particularly wrong, but I think that our our brain creates stories. We, we, we work in terms of narrative. The neuroscience people say there's so much data coming in. I mean, we're not paying attention to all the data that's coming into our organism right now. You're not paying attention to the feelings on the soles of your feet. But, you know, you check. There's feeling there. You know, if you check your feet. But you're listening. You're paying attention to one bit. And we organize all this stuff into narratives, right story, right understanding, appropriate understanding, appropriate story. What's the story that enables us to live without greed, hatred, and delusion? What's the story about greed, hatred, and delusion that allows us to live without it? A kind of an understanding. How do we see it? Because the Buddha said, right understanding is the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. So right understanding, right story, right narrative would result in right intention. Right intention is often described as renunciation or restraint, the abandonment of greed, hatred, and delusion. But there's a positive side to that too. When there's no greed, hatred, and delusion, when there's no self-interested grabbing or clinging, what shows up is equanimity. Krishnamurti, who was an Indian sage last century, set up a place down in Ojai. Some of you may be familiar with him. Apparently had a particularly powerful presence somebody asked him what the secret was of his demeanor and he said my secret is I don't mind what happens equanimity is like that it doesn't mean that when there's unpleasantness you don't address it but you can address it out of kindness and not out of anger you can please Hmm. Who would abandon a self? Maybe an awakened being. I think it's, yeah, an awakened being. Actually, the awakened being doesn't abandon the self. All that happens is that that person sees through the delusion of self. Because self is and me and my name and who I think I am. Those are just concepts. Those are just words. And the experience is different. <clears throat> so, so one isn't deluded by the notion of a self. One engages the experience that's present. So yeah, so right understanding or or right view or right story classically is understood to be seeing uh, clearly the understanding of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and emptiness, anicca, dukkha and anatta. And the distortions of perception there are the distortions of, to see permanence in what is inherently changeable, not substantial. To think about the possibility 
that, you know, that satisfaction is possible. I mean, if we didn't think satisfaction was possible, we wouldn't make an effort. So we're built to fall for that. <laughs> and it, it's helpful. It helps us survive, you know. We, we make an effort and, and it, sometimes it works. But satisfaction is not possible because what would satisfy us? Really, living forever. <laughs> you know, we don't like this impermanence business. I mean, right? We'd like to be safe. We'd like to be stable and secure and not experience fear and anxiety and sadness. We'd like, that's just not in the cards. It's delusional to think that it is. And yet, of course, we're going to try, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if our expectations are delusional, we're going to be disappointed, not getting what you want. That's part of that first truth. And then what happens when we don't get what we want? Crankiness ensues. Yeah. But if one sees through the delusion of self, isn't you know grasping, you know the emptiness of things, that third quality, emptiness, no substantial thing. It's we grasp. Grasping happens, but it's like grasping at water. The clenching happens, but we don't actually get anything. What do we actually get when we get a, a new car? Now you get to stand next to it. You can sit in it and people won't and you can drive it around and the cops won't take you away. You know, it's your car. But no, there's there's feeling about it. It's, just imagine standing next to somebody else's car and standing next to your car. Doesn't it feel different? You know? We have that that's that's those are self feelings. <laughs> you know, we can grab at that car, but we but we don't it's the grasping happens in our mind. For one who is content with the way things are, equanimity, to not be content, to chase after pleasantness, to chase after happiness, I think that's, you know, my take is that that's a con. If you're chasing the pursuit of happiness, it's enshrined in our, our those documents that we don't that we cling to. We do cling to them. Right? You say, "Well, yeah, I know, impermanence. Yeah, I understand it, but not the Bill of Rights. <laughs> not not the rule of law. Right? Cling to those things. But if we are chasing happiness then we're discontent we're not happy we devote our life to pursuing happiness not so much happiness the only problem is that if you don't do it then you're stuck with the way things are and the way things are include that list in that first truth which is a bunch of bummers really you know there isn't there isn't a party on that list so equanimity, if another being comes into one's presence, the response would be friendliness. Benevolence, metta. If that being were, were suffering, were experiencing pain, you know, the response would be compassion. Interesting, the Buddha said there are two different responses to dukkha. There's um, the material response, the worldly response. So if someone is hungry, you give them something to eat. If they're cold, you give them a blanket. If they're lonely, you can be present with them. But there's stuff that you can't do anything about. The other kind of assistance is assistance with the Dharma. So, you know, climate change dukkha, Trump dukkha. How do we, 
these are things that are beyond our ability to control. We can't make them more pleasant. Our expectations that they be different causes us more suffering. And also, because those expectations are dashed, we get a little cranky. If, if the if the other person is suffering, one responds, and you know, responding with dharma assistance doesn't necessarily mean a dharma talk. You know, it could be a joke, something that points out. You know, for me, usually what I say to myself is, "What was I thinking?" <laughs> yeah, what did I think? That rule of law was a permanent feature of human society. What what was I expecting? And you can respond to dukkha without, you can respond with compassion, with kindness, and not necessarily with anger and aversion. When someone, when that other person is experiencing joy, mudita, sometimes mudita is hard to understand. It's a word that means joy and the joy of others, the way, you know, resonating with the pain or suffering of another. A friend, a friend of mine who's blind was telling me a story about how she was out walking with, with another friend one evening and the sunset was apparently particularly spectacular. And her friend started saying, oh my gosh, it's a, you know, the colors and the clouds and the whatever. And Martha said, well, I, you know, I couldn't see anything, but she was so elated by it that it just made her feel good. Mudita. Well, that kind of response is a response that doesn't come out of greed, hatred, and delusion. And then, of course, right speech, right action, right livelihood, appropriate speech, appropriate action, appropriate livelihood. I think, for me, that's the the whole goal of the practice, is to be able to live, speak, act, and build a life that doesn't uh, inject more unpleasantness into the mix. It doesn't inject more suffering into the mix. And we do that through, well, the Buddha says, how do we cultivate right view? Two, two conditions give rise to appropriate understanding, appropriate view, appropriate story. One is appropriate attention. Samasati, samasamadhi, the kind of meditation practice we're doing, which is a practice to learn how to pay attention. And then, he says, the second condition are the teachings of the Dharma. So once we learn how to pay attention, then where do we direct that attention? You know, I think of the, the foundations of mindfulness, the f- paying attention to your breath, paying attention to Vedana, the pleasant and unpleasantness of things, to our mind states. These, these things I think of as like finger exercises for a musician. Learn how to pay attention to our subjective experience. And then the question is, where do we direct that? What's the music? You know, it's not paying attention to your breath. It's paying attention to the arising and passing of our reactivity. Keeping our attention on the, the, our intentions arising and passing. The big trick for those of us I mean, the end of greed, hatred, delusion. Nothing sounds like it's not possible to live in today's society that way. It's more complicated, more turbulence. You know, if you're sitting in the forest, that's easy. You know, you get up and like the Buddha, you go to Vulture Peak and you sit in, you know, deep meditative, you know, rest not a bad way to be but you know um, and the Buddha didn't tell people to go get away from everybody and not help there's a great story about how he comes across a a monk who's sick and nobody's taking care of him and he says wait a minute we've got to take care of uh, each other who's going to take care of us if we don't so he's not without compassionate response. I know there's a, a vision in the Mahayana that the Arhat is selfishly engaged in, you know, some deep personal 
pursuit of jhanic pleasure. The model for the Mahayana is the Bodhisattva, one who, who returns to the world with open hands. For us, the trick is managing Vedana, managing pleasant and unpleasant. How do we manage that? That's really what it comes down to. When things are pleasant, we want more. When things are unpleasant, we push against. But the the practice would be how to figure out how to respond to the pleasant without clinging and to the unpleasant without aversion. You know, the, the, the monastics don't have a lot of choice about what they eat, for example. Use the, the eating part as a metaphor here. You know, they take what shows up in their, in their bowl. And in a way, that makes it easier for them. And, you know, sometimes I try going to a restaurant and when they, the waiter wait person comes up and says, what do you want to say? Pick for me. It'll make them very uneasy. Even my granddaughter doesn't like to do it for me. I'd say, well, you, you order for me. Oh, no. I'd say, well, start with the dessert. No. <laughs> um, managing our preferences. You know, we have a preference for pleasantness. And we sort of think, wow, we shouldn't. But we're built that way. So we can, you know, when we look at the menu, we can order the creme brulee out of kindness. We can treat ourselves the way we would treat a guest, at least. You know, but there's a sense somehow that we ought to practice austerities. You know, so we something like, boy, that restaurant last night was horrible. Let's go again. <laughs> you know, we just don't do that. We're, you know out of kindness to ourselves and to others. So managing, managing our preferences is a big deal. Managing our expectations. Because really, delusional expectations lead to disappointment. Surprise and disappointment. Managing our expectations. We think we're not deluded. What do we know? You know, I, I ask all the time these days just because maybe somebody knows what's going on really. <laughs> really. What is this? You know, I, my daughter posted on her Instagram feed, my daughter's in, in her mid-40s, she said, she posted on her Instagram feed, the three stages of life. Birth, what the fuck is this? And death. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have a clue. And yet, we'll fight over our interpretation of what's going on, argue with people, cause you know, dissension and, and stress and, you know. How do we recognize delusion? You know, Ajahn Pasano was asked once, he's the abbot of Abhaya Giri, was asked how you recognize delusion. He said, well, you'll be suffering. And I thought, well, that's nice, but how do you know when you're suffering? There's, Richard Farina had a book in the back in the 60s, I guess it was titled, Been Down So Long It Looks Like Up to Me. And we just don't notice. It becomes part of the background. The dissatisfaction that life is impermanent. The deepest level unsatisfactory. You know, it's just, we don't recognize. And I, I think that the best marker for dissatisfaction, for delusion, is complaint. If we have a complaint, whether it's legitimate or not, it's a reflection, it's a direct expression of dissatisfaction. Want to know where dukkha is? You know, complaint. Your complaints are a reflection of dukkha. It's the world suffering around you. Listen. My gosh, 
the world is it's just complaints one after another uh, somebody told me that Kevin Griffin refers to the you, you open the newspaper it's the journal of you know greed hatred and delusion we have complaints we hear them all the time just listen to people talking see if you can hear people talking that's not complaint Complaints are a marker for dukkha. They're a marker for dissatisfaction. So how do we practice as lay people in contemporary society? Cultivate uh, right view and live the Eightfold Path. It's what an arhat would do. Cultivating right view cultivating right attention the way we are with our meditation, then direct our attention to our complaints. Because that's dukkha. The Buddha says, what is the purpose of the holy life? It's for a full understanding of dukkha. That's the purpose of the holy life as he explains it. What is the attainment of nirvana? It's the end of greed, hatred, and delusion. What's the attainment of arhatship? The end of greed, hatred, and delusion. What, is the, what are the conditions of complaint? There's unpleasantness. And then there's our response to it. And we can watch how, how we cling to whatever reasons we have. That, that dukkha is internal. It's in our mind. So the life of a bodhisattva of an awakened being today would be a complaint-free life. A life of caring for oneself and others. And that means you know, recognizing how we're built. And not saying, well, I've got friends coming over and we shouldn't care whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. We need to be just present with this unpleasantness. So I'm going to use salt in the creme brulee instead of sugar. It will be good practice. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with treating ourselves with kindness and with compassion instead of with craving and anger. What gives us the ability to do that is insight. Insight into the nature of our dissatisfaction. And really, when you see it for yourself, if you study your complaints, that's where to look. You can also look at those places in your life where you're not feeling particularly friendly. You know, when you're not feeling benevolent, compassionate, kind. Study that. You know, Sharon Salzberg says that the power of metta is so great that if you try to conjure it, it'll show you everything that stands in its way. So what stands in its way are within you. This is the debris to clear out. And we clear it out through insight. Not through telling yourself what to do. Telling yourself to let go or do this, do that, try harder. None of that really works. If we're developing right attention and we're saying, you know, this pen, let go, let go, let go. Right attention? Not so much. Right attention, I'm holding on. Oh, and I have aversion to holding on. Instead, if we're just saying let go, let go, let go, we're expressing that aversion. What gets us to let go? Well, that pen is covered in poison. We let it go. As soon as you see the way in which lopa, dosa, and moha, greed, hatred, and delusion make things worse for ourselves, we'll stop. We're not stupid. We're just slow. <laughs> so we should be kind to ourselves, to our slow selves. 
But what we want to do is cultivate insight. The word panya, which is often translated or most usually translated as wisdom, uh, the the all the Dharma scholars at Oxford are translating it as penetrating insight. It's insight. What frees you is insight. You know, letting go happens when insight happens. When you see that how holding on is not helpful. Grasping and chasing happiness, not helpful. You'd think we'd learn it. I mean, none of us here are brand new at this game. We've been working at it for a bit. You know, as Dr. Phil might say, how's, how's, how is it working for you? you know. So I think that our hardship, the end of greed, hatred, and delusion, is not impossible, theoretically, as far as I can see, in contemporary life. Can we live, uh, can we have a lay life that manifests the Brahma Viharas instead of greed, hatred, and delusion? What would that life look like? Be a life of service, not particularly a life of ambition. I mean, there are things we can say about it, but there's nothing wrong with ambition. It's just that often the ambition to be the one who scores the two points leads to elbowing under the net. You know what I mean? We need to be careful as, as we pursue that pleasant experience and recognize that our expectation of satisfaction is, you know, certainly not certain, maybe delusional. What do we expect? That we're going to be satisfied? No, not, that's not going to happen. We like cadences, but we don't like that final cadence. So let me just pause and, and you know, see how this is going over. <laughs> Please. Everybody good? I was just gonna. I was just gonna invite complaints. <laughs> yeah. Well. Th- I'm glad you're here today. Oh well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you guys for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.